Thank you for joining us on the sermon podcast for Mars Hill Cumberland Presbyterian Church. We love being able to distribute our sermons in this format, but we would love it even more if you could join us in person at 5208 Crow Mountain Road in Russellville, Arkansas, or online at the Mars Hill Cumberland Presbyterian Church Facebook page. We have Sunday school classes at 9 a.m. with a worship service right after at 10 a.m. Let's now prepare our hearts to hear a message from God's Word. Book of Job, chapter 1, verses 1 through 5, and then we'll skip down and read verses 1 through 10 in chapter 2. If you have Job, chapter 1, you can stand in honor of the reading of God's Word, if you like. Hear the word of the Lord. There was a man in the land of us whose name was Job, and that man was perfect and upright, and one that feared God and eschewed evil. Now let me stop there for just a minute and say don't get hung up on the word perfect. It doesn't mean that Job was completely and entirely sinless. When the Bible uses the word perfect, there are very few times where it means completeness like that. Most of the time, when the Bible uses the word perfect, it's talking about in terms of maturity. Job was Job was what we would identify someone as as being the most the most mature in stature in his faith. And we see examples of that all throughout Scripture. So he was a man that was perfect and upright, one that feared God and eschewed evil. Verse 2, And there were born unto him seven sons and three daughters. His substance also was of 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 she-asses in a very great household, so that this man was the greatest of all the men of the east, and his sons went and feasted in their houses. Every, every one his day, and sent and called for their three sisters to eat and to drink with them. And it was so, when the days of their feasting were gone about, that Job sent and sanctified them, and rose up early in the morning, and offered burnt offerings, according to the number of them all. For Job said, It may be that my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. Now look down at chapter 2 and we'll read the first 10 verses there. And again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan came also among them to the presence to present himself before the Lord. And the Lord said unto Satan, From whence whence comest thou? And Satan answered to the Lord and said, From going to and fro in the earth and from walking up and down in it. And the Lord said unto Satan, Hast thou considered my servant Job, that there is none like him in the earth, a perfect and upright man, one that feareth God and escheweth evil, and still holdeth fast his integrity, although thou movest me against him to destroy him without cause? And Satan answered the Lord and said, Skin for skin, yea, all that a man hath will he give for his life. But put forth thine hand now, and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse thee to thy face. And the Lord said unto Satan, Behold, he is in thine hand, but save his life. So went Satan forth from the presence of the Lord and smote Job with sore boils from the sole of his foot unto his crown. And he took him a potsherd to scrape himself withal, and he sat down among the ashes. Then said his wife unto him, Dost thou retain thine integrity? Curse God and die. But he said unto her, Thou speakest as one of the foolish women speaketh. What shall we receive good at the hand of God, and shall we not receive evil? In all this did not Job sin with his lips. 
This ends the reading of God's Word, the Word of God for the people of God. You may be seated. Let's pray. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, this is Your Word and we are Your people and we come before You this morning with this great and difficult text and we ask God that You would send Your Spirit to give us life through this text, to show us the good news in this text and to show us, Lord, that You are good, You are sovereign, You are faithful even when our circumstances are less than desirable. We ask all of these things and commit them to you in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Have I ever told you all the story about Chippy the parrot? (coughs) Well, Chippy never saw it coming. One second he was peacefully perched in his cage, sending a song into the air, and the next second he was sucked in, washed up, and blown over. His problem began when his owner decided to clean the cage with a vacuum. She had stuck the nozzle in to suck up the seeds and feathers at the bottom of the cage when the nearby telephone rang and instinctively she turned to pick it up and she had barely said hello when Chippy got sucked in. She gasped, she let the phone drop, she she turned off the vacuum and with her heart in her mouth she unzipped the bag and there was Chippy, alive but stunned. Covered with heavy gray dust, she grabbed him, rushed him to the bathtub, turned on the faucet full blast, and held Chippy under the torrent of ice-cold water, power washing him clean. And then it dawned on her that Chippy was soaking wet and shivering, so she did what any compassionate pet owner would do. She snatched up the hairdryer and blasted him with hot air. Did Chippy survive? Yes, but he doesn't sing much anymore. He just sits there and stares a lot, having flashbacks. And life is like that sometimes. You never see it coming, but sometimes you get sucked up, washed up, and blown over. This morning we're starting this series called Suffering in the Sight of God, and in this series over the next four weeks, we're going to cover a few sections from the book of Job, and we're going to hopefully be reminded of the fact that when we encounter suffering... God can still be trusted. Just as a fair warning, I think this morning's sermon is going to be more information than application, and I think sometimes that's good, uh, because I think as a preacher you just need to talk about the text and let the application come naturally instead of looking at five ways to be more spiritual or whatever. And so I think this morning we just need to talk about what's there and let the application naturally unfold. So why suffering in the sight of God? Why are we using that title? Because I want us to see that when Job suffers, and more practically, when, when we suffer, God sees it all. He's not ignorant of what we're going through. When we suffer, we suffer in His sight. When we suffer, He sees it all, and He doesn't leave us. He's there with us. The problem is not that He's distant. The problem is that, our, is that in our suffering, we have a tendency to feel disconnected. God is there when we can't see Him. God is there when we can't touch Him. God is there when we can't feel Him. The problem problem with understanding faith for for human beings is that we worship an almighty, all-powerful, all-knowing God who is entirely physically invisible. And we we can't deal with that sometimes. Now, God has not left us without His Word. God has not left us without testimonies that point to Him. God has not left us without 
creation that points to his existence, his rule, and his reign. As, Rom, as Romans chapter 1 says, no human being is without excuse. But none of that makes God himself in his being physically visible to us. And that's where faith comes in. And when it comes to suffering, and when it comes to when it comes to suffering and when it comes to encountering difficulty in our lives, we have a tendency to think, well, if I've been good, and if God is good, then I wouldn't experience anything this bad. And the book of Job teaches us that that's a faulty line of thinking. I like, Doug, I like what Doug Wilson said about the book of Job. He said, the book of Job is a great book, and like many great things, our natural tendency is to get it down to a more understandable level so that we can piously misunderstand it. If you read later in the book, then you know that this is exactly what Job's friends did with his suffering. They piously misunderstand his suffering and assume that because Job's life is chaotic and he's lost everything, then he must have done something to deserve it when in fact God is at work in the suffering. You don't see the result of his suffering until the end of the book, and I think that's a practical word in and of itself, you're not going to understand what your suffering produces in you until you get on the other side of it. So hang on. It's been a bumpy ride, and it may get bumpier, but if you don't hang on, you won't see the good on the other side of your suffering. <clears throat> Another thing I think is worth pointing out is that the book of Job is a very direct book that provides little to no explanation of what we're reading. There's no historical connection to hardly any other place or event in Scripture. It's been, it, it's been the archaeologists and historians who have figured out for us that Uz was a part of Edom, so we can assume that Job himself was an Edomite, which is interesting because Job is not a Jew. Job is not a Jew. He's a Gentile. So he's, he's Edomite. He's from the line of Esau. And then in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, there's an added paragraph at the end of Job that tells us that Job was the second king of Edom mentioned in Genesis 36-33 known as Jobab, which would explain his immense wealth and prosperity. So Job is, Job, Job is Jobab from Genesis. He is, he is known in Genesis as the second king of Edom. So not only is he an Edomite, but he's, he's a king in Edom which would explain his immense wealth and prosperity. And another thing that I'd like to mention here, this is not in my notes, so if I mess it up, that's on me. I was looking at some uh, theological papers and some articles over the book of Job last night, and I found out something very interesting from uh, James B. Jordan, who was a theologian at, uh, on the Biblical Horizons website. And one of the things he pointed out was that if Job is an Edomite king, that would make his three friends that we find later in the book of Job who come and sit by him that would make three friends uh, the counsel to the king. And so what they were doing is because Job was suffering, his kingdom was also suffering. And so what the wise men were doing, what his three friends were doing, they were trying to get to the root cause of his suffering, not to help him, but to help the kingdom. Because if the kingdom suffered, they suffered. And so we find out exactly why his three friends are trying to explain his suffering and figure out if he's sinned and figure out if he's something, done something to deserve this because they've got a stake in it too. So, that's something to keep in mind as you read the rest of the book of Job. So he's the second king of Edom mentioned in Genesis 36, 33, known as Jobab. 
And it's also supposed that his three friends uh, were members of his cabinet. One final thing by way of introduction, when someone brings up the question of evil, we're quick to respond that because we, we all know the Genesis 3 narrative, but we quickly learn that there's a vast difference. We, we quickly learn that there's a vast difference between the questions. Why is there suffering and why am I suffering? Why is there suffering and why am I suffering? Those are two different questions. The first question is philosophical and theological. Why is there suffering? Well, if someone asks you why is there suffering, you, the easy answer is to point back to Genesis chapter 3 and talk about how in Adam's fall, sinned we all, sin entered the world. That's why there is suffering. But then you get to the more personal question of why am I suffering? What did I do? That one's a little harder to answer. Especially when you're in Job's position, because it said Job didn't sin. Job didn't bring on, in the beginning of the book, it said Job was upright, he feared God, he eschewed evil. He did all the things you're supposed to do, and suffering still came upon his household. That, that's, you know, Adam sinned. That explains why there's suffering in the world in general. But when you get to the more personal question of why am I suffering, especially when you can't think of a reason why you should be suffering, that's difficult. So the story so far... The story so far up to our text is that we are introduced to Job, his family, and his possessions, and then in chapter 1, verses 6 through 12, a portion that we didn't read, we see a picture of a time when some heavenly beings or cosmic beings came before God. They are identified as the sons of God in verse 6, and then we read where Satan does what he does best. He accuses Job before God, and he basically says, you know, God, Job doesn't really love you. He loves all the things that you give him, but he doesn't love you. And if you were to stretch out your hand against all that he owns, he would curse you. And then this is God's reply in Job chapter 1 verse 12. Very well, the Lord told Satan, everything he owns is in your power. However, do not lay a hand on Job himself. So Satan left the Lord's presence. And then that's when all hell broke loose in the most literal sense of the phrase. Have you ever had hell break loose in your life? It's, if it's not one thing, it's another. You've got bills back to back. You can't get caught up. You've got projects at work that just pile up in your family. You've got loved ones dropping left and right. It just seems like out of nowhere, everything has hit you all at once, and you can't seem to find a normal. You can't seem to find a normal. And I think one of the most freeing things is that you are not the first person to experience this, and you're not even the most important person to experience this. The undeserved suffering of Job points to a greater undeserved suffering, Jesus. Jesus undergoes imaginable suffering and violence at the hands of violent men for all of us. He stands in our place and takes our beating, our scourging, and even our death, and then he resurrects so that we can resurrect with him in the newness of life. And it's for those reasons that we might consider Job to be a theologian of the cross. Job, a theologian of the cross that points to the undeserved suffering of Christ. The rest of Job chapter 1 includes the destruction of all of Job's property, the death of his children, but the chapter doesn't end there. Job gives God praise with these words in Job 1.21. He says, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will leave this life. 
the Lord gives and the Lord takes away, blessed be the name of the Lord. And then in, then verse 22 says, throughout all this, Job did not sin or blame God for anything. Now that's at the beginning of the book. By the time we get to the end of the book, it's a different story because if you read the beginning of the book, it says Job was blameless, he didn't sin, he didn't blame God for anything. But then when you get to the end of the book in Job chapter 42, when God shows up and gives this massive speech, Job, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Where were you when I created the Leviathan? In Job 42, it's at the beginning of Job 42, it says Job repented. So at the beginning of the book, it says Job didn't sin, nor did he blame God. But by the end of the book, we see where Job repented. So, by the, so something happened between chapter 1 and chapter 42 that caused Job to repent. He had something to repent of. And I'll tell you what it was. It was these three friends that came. Because <laughs> what's interesting is that these three friends came along and tried to explain away Job and tried to explain Job's suffering for him. They said, well, Job, you had to have sinned, and he keeps retaining his innocence. And then eventually, it drives Job to a point where he gets arrogant. Because he says, if you read the whole book of Job, anytime Job speaks, he, he gets to a point of indignation against God. He almost, it's almost like he turns against God at some point and says, and says, God, why are you doing this to me? Why am I suffering? Why did I do all these things? I've lived for you. I've done all these good things, and now here I am suffering. And Job gets indignant. And so finally, he gets to a point where he has, maybe sin is a strong word, but he gets to a point where he has something to repent of in chapter 42. Okay? And I think what it was is Job could, and I think it's interesting that, that Satan stands in the presence of God, and he says, well, I'm going to take all these things from Job, and when I do this, he's going to curse you. Well, Satan does that. Satan takes all those things from Job. And Job, not only does Job not turn against God, Job attributes those things to God because he says the Lord gave and the Lord take away. So Satan didn't even get credit for destroying the things of Job. And... So Satan takes those things away from Job, and he didn't even get credit for it, which is funny. Uh, but the second thing that happens is, is, is Job survives the cause of his grief. Job survives the cause of his grief. He gets through the cause of his grief scot-free because he doesn't sin, he doesn't blame God, but then when his three friends start trying to explain away his suffering... It, that makes him angry, and that causes him to sin. So Job, Job survived the cause of his grief, but he couldn't make it through the grief counseling. And so in chapter 2, in chapter 2, we come back to this scene in heaven where the sons of God present themselves before God, and Satan is there again as the conversation goes on, and Satan accuses Job and says, he still doesn't love you, you know. He said, a man will give up everything he owns in exchange for his life. But stretch out your hand and strike his flesh and bones, and he'll surely curse you to your face. And the Lord said unto Satan, Behold, he is in thine hand, but save his life. And so went Satan forth from the presence of God, and smote Job with sore boils from the sole of his foot unto his crown. And so it's almost a retelling. It's almost a retelling of what happened in chapter 1, but it's a little different. 
And again, for Job, if it's not one thing, it's another. First, his property gets destroyed, his children are dead, and now he's covered in boils. And then in these last few verses in chapter 2 is where we're going to get the majority of our application from. He, then his wife said unto him, Dost thou still retain thine integrity, curse God, and die? But he said unto her, Thou speakest as one of the foolish women speaketh. What, shall we receive good at the hand of God, and shall we not receive evil? In all this did not Job sin with his lips. You notice that, uh, you notice that Satan... You notice that Satan took Job's children and took his property but let him keep his wife? Something to that. Anyway. Uh, <laughs> she'll hear that later. <laughs> so Job's integrity is recognized by his wife. I think that's significant because integrity is a lot like humility. Integrity is a lot like humility. Once you recognize those things in yourself, you no longer have them. <laughs> And, or at the very least, you make people skeptical of you. Here, read my book, Ten Steps to Humility and How I Got There. Um, I don't, here's the thing. I don't trust people by nature, but if you tell me that you're humble, if you tell me that you're humble or that you have integrity, I'm going to doubt you even more because you don't trust your own humility or integrity enough to let someone else see those things inside of you. And I think the fact that Job's wife saw his integrity, and asked him if he was still going to retain it creates an important question. And the question is this. Does our integrity in God show to people around us? Does our integrity in God show to people around us? When we suffer, can people tell by looking at our lives that we retain our integrity? What do we do with our suffering? If we look at what, what we know about Job's situation up to this point, I think there are two things that make up Job's integrity and that I think will make up ours. First of all, it's trust in God's sovereignty and trust in God's character. Trust in God's sovereignty and trust in God's character. First of all, Job trusts God's sovereignty. Well, what does it mean that God is sovereign? It means that he's in control, he's large and in charge, nothing can happen that is outside of his control. Jerry Bridges in his book, Trusting God, Even When Life Hurts, says, That which should distinguish the suffering of believers from unbelievers is the confidence that our suffering is under the control of an all-powerful and all-loving God. Our suffering has meaning and purpose in God's eternal plan, and He brings or allows to come into our lives only that which is for His glory and for our good. Remember, what Paul says in Romans chapter 8, verse 28. We know that all things work together for the good of those who love God, who are called according to His, what? Purpose. How many things? All things. You know what the word all in the Greek is? All. It's not that complicated. What about the death of a loved one? What about the death of a child? What about the destruction of all that we own? What about the loss of our 401k? What about the loss of everything we've worked for? Well, it's not up to us to figure out how those things work for our good and God's glory. But it is our responsibility to trust God in the process. It is our responsibility to trust God in the process. I like what Adrian Rogers said one time. He said, our only responsibility is our response to God's ability. Our only responsibility is our response to God's ability. 
When Joseph's brothers sold him into slavery, he went and spent time in prison, and then Potiphar's wife accused him of sexual misconduct against her, and he, st he was still able to tell them, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. God is always working good for his people, always, and it's because he is good. God can't be anything but good. This brings us to the second part of Job's integrity. He not only trusted God's sovereignty, he also trusted God's character. We not only believe that God is large and in charge, but we believe he's good. In Genesis, when God begins the work of creation, he finishes off whatever he's creating and he says plainly, it is good. And then when he created man, he said that man was very good. Good can only come from God. God is the ultimate source of good. According to James chapter 1, verse 17, he says every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of heavenly lights who does not change like shifting shadows. Psalm 34, verse 8 tells us to taste and see that the Lord is good. The Bible is filled with invitation after invitation to see God. But there is something that stands out to me in Psalm 34, 8. David is telling us that if you taste God, if you taste God, if you even get just a little sample, you will find him to be good. That's a guarantee. And the word taste is really interesting in this, conduct, in this context because when we think about our tastes, not everyone likes the same thing. I love Chinese and Vietnamese food. I will not take grandma there because she will stay in the car. She would rather stay in the car and suck air conditioning than go in the restaurant and eat sweet and sour pork. <laughs> we have different tastes. But David is saying that it doesn't matter what your tastes are per se. It doesn't matter what you like or don't like if you really seek God and if you really pursue Him in His Word with the love and the support of His church, then you will find Him. And not only will you find Him, but you will find Him to be good. Those are the two things that are essential about God. He is good and He is powerful. And that's what Job acknowledges. When his wife tells him, curse God and die, Job doesn't take the easy way out by shaking his fists at God. Instead, he asks her a very deliberate and poignant question in chapter 2, verse 10, that I want to ask you. Shall we receive good at the hand of God, and shall we not receive evil? Now, if you're hung up on the word evil, the CSB trans translates it as adversity. In this verse, Job acknowledges that both come from God. Both good times and adverse times come from God. I'll say that again. Both good times and adverse times come from God. Commentators and scholars can try to weasel their way around this passage all they want to, but Job very plainly says that when God holds out his hand toward you, you had better take what's in it, whether it's good or whether it's adverse regardless of whether that thing that God hands you looks good or whether it looks evil, God is always going to use it for good. Now we read the book of Job and we know the ending. He got his stuff back. And we think that's the, and we think that's the good that God was working all along. And that's part of it. But if you think the end of Job is about getting his stuff back, then you have a very materialistic, superficial view of Scripture. Because that's not what it's about. It's not simply about Job getting his stuff back, although that was good. 
But that's not it. Even if Job had not gotten his stuff back, even if he was still sick, even if he was poor and destitute, there still would have been good in Job's life that God worked. And that is in Job 38 and 39. When, when God speaks to Job and reminds him about all of his inner workings in the universe, and then Job finally realizes that the world is bigger than himself, and he repents. The book of Job could have ended at that point. The, jo- the book of Job could have ended after God's final speech in chapters 38 and 39, and it still would have been a godly resolution because God's word is enough for those who trust and believe him. The book of Job could have ended at that point and God would have still been good. Do you know why? Because you can't measure God's goodness in your life by how well you're doing. You can't measure God's goodness in your life based on how much stuff you have. You can't measure God's goodness in your life based on how you feel. And when I say you can't do that, I mean it in both senses of the phrase. You can't in that you're not allowed to, and you can't because it's impossible. It's not a fair treatment of God. God is good whether or not your circumstances are good. And really, I think that's good news for, for us. God is good even when we're not. God is good even when our circumstances are not. God is good even when those around us want to accuse our God of not being good. In his book, If God is Good, Randy Alcorn talks about a story that Sinclair Ferguson used to tell. And here's the story. In January 1852, a search party found missionary Alan Gardner's lifeless body. He and his companions had shipwrecked on Tierra del Fuego and their provisions had run out and they'd starved to death. Gardner, at one point, felt desperate for water. His pangs of thirst, he wrote, were almost intolerable. Far from home and loved ones, he dies alone, isolated, weakened, and physically broken. Isn't this one of those stories told to raise the problem of evil and suffering? Indeed, if the story ended like this, we would find it tragic beyond description. Despite the wretched conditions of his death, Gardner wrote out scripture passages including Psalm 34.10. The young lions do lack and suffer hunger, but they that seek the Lord shall not want any good thing. Nor death, his handwriting, near death, his handwriting feeble, Gardner managed to write one final entry in his journal. I am overwhelmed with a sense of the goodness of God. Starving to death on an island, trying to do the Lord's work, He wrote, I am overwhelmed with a sense of the goodness of God. That's what I want for us. In our deepest moments of turmoil and affliction, I want us to be able with confidence to say that we are overwhelmed with a sense of God's goodness. Can we say that this morning? Can we say that in the midst of suffering, turmoil, and strife? I'm going to pray for us, and we're going to sing one more hymn, and I want us to think about that this morning. Heavenly Father, remind us that when we suffer, we do not suffer alone. You are there with us, and you love us. We are not alone, and we thank you for that. Lord, send us your Spirit this morning to apply the word that we've been given. In the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns 
with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Thank you for joining us for this special message. We hope you were blessed and encouraged by the preaching and teaching of God's Word. Now, may the Lord bless you, keep you, make His face to shine upon you, and give you peace. Amen.